In this episode, I host part five of an ongoing trialogue between Shin Zen Young, meditation teacher and neuroscience research consultant, Chelsea Fasano, a Columbia University neuroscience student, and Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, assistant director for the Center for Consciousness Studies and research assistant professor at the University of New Mexico. In this episode, we discuss topics such as, is there an enlightenment button and is it enough? extracting the essence of religious approaches, multidimensional integration after enlightenment, and we take a deep dive into trauma and the no-self. So without further ado, Shinzen Young, Chelsea Fasano, and Dr. Jay Sanguinetti. Shinzen Young, Chelsea Fasano, and once again, Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be here. Wow, I'm very excited that we have the dream team reassembled for another episode. The last one was so so thrilling and so exciting. At the end of the last episode, Chelsea suggested that seeing as we have Jay here, that perhaps you take point on this episode. And so you've been telling me that you have already a frame for the conversation in mind. I don't know what it is, so I'm so excited. Jay, please take it away. Sure. Well, thanks again for the invitation. I've been looking forward to this for weeks, so this is a real treat. Um, so yeah, I thought I would open it up with a few very loaded questions, and then we can dig into some of the nuances and caveats within these questions um, to give a, a sort of frame for what uh, has really been rattling around in my mind since the last conversation. Um, so each of these questions is, are very loaded, I'll say that up front, um, and I hope we can sort of dig into why uh, they're quite loaded. So the first question is, is there an enlightenment button? Um, so Shenzhen and I uh, and several other labs are working on neurotechnologies that can facilitate mindfulness, make it work faster. Uh, the end goal of that might be something like a device you put on your head, you push a button and you have instant enlightenment. Um, so lots of loaded things in there. As a scientist, I even hesitate to use the word enlightenment without defining it up front, but let's just leave it there as part of the frame. The next question is, okay, let's assume that there is an enlightenment button. There's a piece of tech that we can create to push that button and give you that, that state or trait transition. Um, is that enough? If we can put this device on people's heads and give them that, uh, will the, what will the world look like? Will there be human beings that are capable of going to their jobs and being mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters? So is enlightenment enough in this case, or is there something else we have to do to the nervous system to help people integrate and transition into that new life? Uh, the final question is, okay, let's assume yes and yes. Uh, should we do that? <laughs> so then we'll move into the ethical realm and talk about should we do that? Who should do that? Should it be, a, should it be the United Nations level organization or can two guys and, and a girl in a lab uh, get together and, and do it, you know, in Tucson, Arizona. Um, so there we go. That, that's my frame. And I think maybe starting with the question of what would enlightenment button look like? Is that possible? Is it possible to just push a button and wake up in the first place? And uh, I think all three of us on the call here, all four of us on the call here could have something to say about that. So maybe we'll kick it to Shenzhen. Um, what are your initial, what, what bubbles up when, when the question arises? Is, there, is it possible to have an enlightenment button? Well, uh, obviously the first question is the one that you have intentionally, I believe intentionally made vague, 
in order to get the juices of the conversation going, which is what do we mean by enlightenment? So depending on that definition, this question becomes a sequence of questions, um, which is very clever because then we have to, everyone gets to say their definition of enlightenment. So if by enlightenment, we mean the functioning day-to-day -day state of um, a well-integrated adept. And by adept, we'll say, we'll say something roughly to put a tangible frame on what I mean by a senior integrated adept. Uh, think Japanese Zen master in their 70s, 80s, something like that. Are we going to feasibly have a short intervention that is physical of some sort and we go from being whoever you were in your functioning to being that, that's a real stretch. Um, I think maybe when we get the ability to quantumly transform any form of matter into any other form of matter, we can start to talk about that science. <laughs> but that's probably way out of the question right now. I mean, we can talk about the theoretic, but that's science fiction-y kind of science. Is, let's look at another uh, aspect. Is there, is it possible to do something like pressing a button? Um, and <clears throat> a person have a, an experience analogous to, shall we call it, um, I used to call it a, a baby Kensho. So in Zen, your initial enlightenment is often referred to as Kensho, seeing your nature. Now, the term baby Kensho, <laughs> Uh, ben Show, actually, me and Shelley had this joking language working with students because sometimes a student would have not really a Ken Show, but you could see it was a little taste. Um, and that's often enough to really encourage them. So could we press a button or do something that's an intervention? And most people have as the result of that, something like that. Um, yeah, that might be possible. And <clears throat> that would be motivating for people uh, and helpful, you know, push them in the right direction. Um, so there's a distinction between an opening that latches and it's more or less that way from now on and you grow with it for the rest of your life versus one of these little, you get a little hint of something 
okay? Um, and then there's that range of the hint of something. And the high range of the hint of something will uh, change a person forever. And that can happen spontaneously without any practice, without any intention. It just happens to people. So can we induce the high end of the spontaneous quasi-enlightenment? Semi-enlightenment, it's not really there because it didn't latch. I bet we can do that. Now, the obvious issue is how do we get from that to that highly integrated and incomparably, incomparably deeper liberation that would constitute the functioning adept. Yeah, I think that would be a summary. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you for that. So quite a bit in there. Let me try to unpack a little bit of what I was hearing. So one part is that there may be a way that consciousness knows something about itself that's new. Um, we might call that an altered state, and that altered state can be given by some type of intervention. Uh, we know that you can take various forms of psychedelic interventions, uh, which are becoming very popular, thanks, to Mike, thanks mostly to Michael Pollan's book. Um, so we know that you can have a temporary state-level change that's very powerful and transformative, at least within the clinic. The question is, um, how, how deep does that go? Does it go so deep that you can have uh, an experience or consciousness can know itself in such a way that it permanently transforms the whole brain and the body? And I think for me, that's, that's a deep scientific question that we won't be able to get to for quite a long time. But the question is, is that really the goal? Is that a possibility? that we could put some type of neurotechnology. So in our lab, for example, we're using brain stimulation and brain imaging at the same time to try to modulate the circuits in the brain. At some point in the next 50 to 100 years, maybe we'll have a sophisticated piece of technology that can rearrange the circuitry such that it gives you this deep experience. Um, so would that be enough? Is, is it getting the person to that self-knowledge or self-awareness uh, that they're gonna have this deep transformation and then they're done? Or is there another principle inherent in this, um, which you might guess that I'm on this side, which is that maybe the nervous system is constantly in change and flux. Uh, the neurons are never done learning and unlearning. There's always principles of plasticity in the brain. And so even if you have this deep transformative experience, there's something else that you have to do on top of that to maintain in that direction. Um, and we can define what that direction might be. Um, but, but that's the question. Can we get to the point where this tech is so powerful that boom, you're done? Um, or is it always going to need some of what you, just what you just called integration, which maybe we should define? Well, I can certainly say that people that have spontaneous awakenings or liberation experiences, let's not quibble about the language, <laughs> can call it uh, any of the above. In the spontaneous cases, um, seldom do they realize the full potential and further life is needed, lots of it. 
And usually that further life that is needed uh, to realize the full potential entails taking a lot of feedback on your own faults from a lot of different people. And it also, in the most efficient cases, entails taking on a practice, even though you might not have had a practice. That means a formal meditation practice. So most people who have spontaneous experiences do best if they move forward willing to change based on what the world tells them about themselves, but also if they move forward under more expert guidance uh, of senior practitioners, or if not that, at least they have their own practice uh, to accelerate. If you don't take feedback from the world um, and, uh, or actually, or um, you don't uh, uh, sort of help the process along, um, then you probably will not grow optimally. That's in the spontaneous case. In the case of people that do practice, it's exactly the same case, exactly the same principles hold. So, you know, when you and I started, I would not have thought we could induce a high-end uh, semi-Kensho, <laughs> okay. Now, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm, I think we can do it, but I'm less skeptical <laughs> that we can do it, which is progress. But I don't think that that alone can do it uh, in terms of what this practice is about in the end. Might I interject a question to, uh, to you all? One of the criticisms that's leveled against, should we say modern mindfulness by religious practitioners is that the modern mindfulness trend plucks certain techniques from their religious context, contexts such as the ethical context, or even contexts such as the view or the philosophical framing in which those techniques are occurring, or maybe even in the social context. It's one of the criticisms of mindfulness. And perhaps one of the criticisms modern mindfulness might make of a scientific intervention, and, and then by extension, the religious proponents would be that we're taking an insight out of its the soil of practice and further removing it, extracting it further from, you know, in a certain sense, the mindfulness people may, modern mindfulness people may make a criticism of, of an intervention like that, that's similar to the criticism that's made of them by religious uh, proponents. I'm wondering if you've considered in terms of what else is necessary, this is sort of what we're talking about, if we can consider a scientific intervention to be uh, another way of doing what the religious context would be doing through their way of meditating, almost a sort of meditation uh, by science. Mm -hmm. Is there any way of 
drawing correlates from the other components of that religious tapestry uh, and isolating that, I suppose, extracting that to its its essence, a sort of chulen in that sense, scientific chulen of yeah. the religious context also. Scientific um, what? Huh? Chulen. Chulen meaning the extracting of the essence, the Tibetan practice of extracting essential nutrients from little pills or from the sunlight or from flowers and so on. I was making a sort of Tibetan Reference. I'm not thing. familiar with this term. C H U L E N. Yeah. Chu Len. Chu, I seem to remember is essence. And then Len means to take Chu Len. I am not familiar with that term, so I'll look it up. That's, they say yeah. that's how the yogis could sit in their cave for so long without any nutrition, mm. you know, because yeah, well, you know, nutrition. they say a lot of things. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know that movie, uh uh, uh where the uh, what Uma Thurman's line, they say a lot of things, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they say a lot of things. We'll see in the lab. Sorry to be a little bit not impressed by they say, to be honest. But Jay, yeah. take it away. You know, a lot, lot of, a lot is coming up there, but I think you're getting to the heart of my question, which really is, when we extract away all of this and we're trying to get to the essence of an enlightenment button through science, through controlling all of these parameters and constructs and conditions, what we're getting to is what is the experience that we're calling enlightenment? And, and in science, how can we operationalize or how can we define that so I can measure that and know whether Shenzhen is having a real enlightenment can show experience or something he's calling that because he's read about it or whatever we might worry. And what's really interesting about this is this is a yin-yang situation because as we extract this into science, we have to go into the realm of experience, which many of my scientist colleagues don't like to talk about all that much because experience is fraught with so much illusion. You can be wrong about it. You can delude yourself. There's a placebo effect. There's all these issues with experience that make it hard to study. But fundamentally, that's where we have to get to if we're really creating a tech that is transforming the inner life of a person such that outer behavior transforms in the world. And so we can't escape the question of what is experience? What informs it? Uh, what's the historical, socio-political you know, context as you're talking about for that person's individual experience? And so I think we have no way but to embed it back into the culture as you're talking about. That doesn't have to be, you know, for an, for an American living, you know, I'm from Mississippi, so a Mississippi-derived American living in the Southwest, I don't have to embed my experience back into Buddhist culture to meditate, but if I'm going to extract those practices and then have this transformative experience, you have to look at my historical, socioeconomic, and lived experience uh, over time to really even begin to talk about what a transformation for me would look like. And so that, that's at the heart of what I'm asking is that just having a one-off experience by pushing a button doesn't tell me what happens to that person for the next 20 years or 30 years. And you, you really can't even understand what it means for that person unless you know their history and the context of that person's consciousness in the first place. Um, and, and I think that's what science will ultimately tell us is if you wanna understand consciousness, you have to understand the brain, the brain body connection, the brain heart connection, the body connection to the, the whole system, and then how the body is 
living as a social political system within a, a bunch of other systems. And I think that then points us to, yes, of course, you can transform experience in the moment. You can give someone a mystical type experience that transforms them in the way that having a child might transform their life. But that, that is not a fixed experience, obviously. It's in motion. The body is constantly learning and it's, it's embedded in a, a system of systems. And so if we're going to look at this from a scientific perspective, we have to understand how that momentary experience relates to the rest of the system in time. Um, and, and as I hear deeply, I think that's what the religious Buddhists are saying as well, is you have to put this back in the historical context in time to really even understand what we mean by kinsho or what we mean by enlightenment or something like that. So I hope that helps. <laughs> I have a few comments on this topic, which I've thought about extensively, as you know, Jay, because you read all of my thoughts in a 40 page format. Um, but one of the things I think is sort of the underlying problem, if you will, is something that Evan Thompson talks a lot about, which is problems in neuroscience in general, where we tend to view things as parts rather than relationships. So meaning, you know, if I assume that the brain and I'm looking at the brain in an fMRI scanner without looking at the body, without looking at the environment, without looking at relationships to other people, etc. there's a presupposition that the brain is sort of this independent entity rather than um, what he talks about, about embodied interdependent cognition, where our thinking process actually depends on our environment and on the outside of what's happening beyond our skin. And can we really actually create an artificial boundary between the brain and the outside body? Um, and similarly between the body and the mind and between culture and neurology um, and between, you know, states of enlightenment, samadhi, bliss, and, and any of those things and the rest of a person's psyche. Is it even possible to experience one without another? Which is actually a concept in Buddhism that I read about a few days ago where things are conceived of as fundamentally interdependent because they can't exist without their contrasting counterparts. So otherwise nothing actually is anything unto itself. And I think the trend in neuroscience has been to study things in isolation, in elite environments, not interdependently, not relationally, um, which in and of itself creates a paradigm that we're now deconstructing and saying, well, actually it may not be the experience that's important. It may be the relationship of the experience to the rest of the person and the relationship of the experience to culture, history, the present moment, everything that's happened to that person up until that time, which brings back to a question we've talked about a lot, Jay, about integration. And so when we think about integration, for me, the question that I am asking myself is what is the nature of the relationship of spiritual experiences to other things in the psyche? Does the, do the, does the experience always motivate the person to do more practice? Does the experience always leak over into other areas of life? Does it always influence morality? Does it always influence the person's capacity to love? If not, we, and we need to work at it, what are the mechanisms with which we would need to work at it and where are the systems that do that? 
Um, and I think the configurations around spiritual experiences are so interesting. And the longer I observe many different practitioners and notice the way that they've configured their life and personality around the experiences they're having, I realize that this, in my eyes, is just as important as the experience. Um, so there's that. That's part of the question. And then the other questions are, can we create a rewarding experience that people want to repeat, which I think is an easier question to answer. And then the, the second question from that is just because something is rewarding, does it give insight? If it does give insight, does that insight translate to the rest of one's life? So that's how I see the hierarchy of these questions working. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but that's the way I think about it. Yes, super helpful. It reminds me of uh, Ken Wilbur. I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners know Ken, but he's um, a, a popular philosopher uh, who's written lots of interesting books about uh, spiritual and moral development. And he has this idea, which is summarized as clean up, uh, grow up, wake up. And the idea is that you need to do some psychological cleanup if you have trauma, for example, from childhood. That trauma we, we think is stored as patterns in the body in the muscles and the brain and the nervous system. Somewhere that trauma is stored. And depending on what's happening to you in the world, that things might activate that trauma in a way that leads to maladaptive behavior, leads you to uh, creating the conditions for you to have lots of suffering. So you gotta clean that up, go to therapy, do psychedelic interventions, whatever it is for you to clean that up. Then you need to grow up, which means morally develop. You know, children go through various levels of moral development, which have been pretty well defined. Uh, and then for whatever reason, we stop at the age of 21 and uh, that you don't have to, you can continue going until you realize that you are, you know, uh, an alien traveling on a, on, a, on a spaceship through space. And there may be other species out there, you know, in the universe who, you know, we're just one of many. And we're all connected in this big cosmic way. Uh, then you do the wake up. So there's a very clear progression of, of what he says. And I, I think something like that is aligned with what you're asking about, that even if you have these deep spiritual, mystical, awakening level experiences that give you deep insights that do change you and change your behavior, that some of those deep patterns, the psychological trauma patterns, um, fear patterns, all that, all that sort of mucky stuff in the system that's there to help you survive and figure out what to do in this crazy world. Those patterns may still be there, even though your conscious part is really awake and happy and feels like everything is fine and is saying that and using that narrative. Uh, as soon as the body interacts with some, something that triggers you, uh, then that pattern gets activated and the behavior, you know, goes in a negative direction. Um, so I do wonder, I kind of wonder what Shenzhen thinks about Ken Wilber's proclamation there, but it does seem like this, almost cleanup is orthogonal to wake up. This is a standard phraseology in that order. Clean up. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not sure if Ken Wilber says it has to be in that order, but you need all three to really make a human ah, being who's okay. functional. Because an ordered triple and a triple are set theoretically completely different critters. Right, <laughs> true. <laughs> and the habitual muscle 
the expression, clean up, grow up, wake up, repeated over and over and over again by people, I think has created an impression that you do one, then you do the other, then you do the other. But maybe I'm wrong. I'm hoping I'm wrong. If I'm right, that is terribly wrong, terribly misleading. Because if you say, I'm going to clean up before I start waking up, you will never wake up. You, I'm cleaning up. And I don't plan to be done until I draw my last breath on the cleanup shit of my life. <laughs> so the elements are terrific. Not quite sure of the difference between clean up and grow up, but I, I think I have an idea. But I'm just afraid people will say, well, I don't, I'm not ready to meditate. I need to do trauma work. Mm -hmm. And 10 years later, they still aren't ready to meditate. <laughs> Because the trauma work hasn't done, because it can only do so much. Mm -hmm. So I would just say, assuming those are well-defined the way I think they're defined, great idea, but let's be careful of that possible ordering. Mm -hmm. uh, because a lot of people wake up and hopefully go through these other processes. Um, now, the one thing I would say to the so-called criticism of so-called modern mindfulness um, <clears throat> is there's what, uh, let's see how, how to put it. Um, The important thing is to both be aware of what someone is saying, but also be aware of what they're not saying that you might think they're saying. And that's a two-person job. That's the job of the sayer to make sure they don't present a, uh, an impression that they're saying something that they don't really mean to say. But it's also the job of the listener to not make pre pre uh, assumptions. So we were asked, Jay and I were asked as scientists, or Jay put the question as a scientific question, um, you know, could we maybe give people uh, a life transforming wow? that's in the right direction as far as the rest of the contemplative path goes, so start them off that way. Um, to which I said, yeah, maybe so. I, I said that, might be possible. <clears throat> I didn't say that, um, that's all that's needed. Nothing was implied by saying we, in saying we could do this, that 
the scientists that is interested in that is looking at that, that they're saying, we think there's all, this is all there is to it. Um, if you ask me, is there all there, is this all there is to it? I would say, no, that's not all there is to it. But you just asked me the one question, do you think we could possibly induce this? The answer is yes, I said yes. But what I should have said immediately is, <laughs> but exactly this, 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 and this is what is the more that is needed. Now, it boils down to something along, we're afraid you'll lose the moral compass and we're, we're afraid you'll lose the spiritual clout that's going to get watered down. I know for sure that the full extent of positive behavior change um, and the full extent of liberation from mind-body experience that is associated with religious practice can be associated with a practice that is philosophically completely devoid of any religious language or terminology. Enlightenment is ready for prime time in the People's Republic of China. By the norms that that society presents to its population. Wow. But if you're freaked out by this kind of talk, then just read my manuals for how we guarantee that all those elements are brought in. We don't speak in abstract. It's all very clearly <laughs> delineated. Here's how you make sure the positive behavior changes there. I actually intimated it. Take feedback. That's how you grow up mostly not by following certain customs or by having certain whatever's about whatever. There's a role for that. Those are called guidelines. But mostly you take feedback and then the practice and your liberation allows you hopefully to grow with that. So, and then how do you make sure that people actually get liberation? Um, well, you don't have to use words like liberation or no self or, or oneness or enlightenment uh, or even compassion or any of these words that some people love and other people, it's like fingernails on the blackboard, depending on your politics, uh, specifically in the US. It doesn't have, the spiritual dimension is not in the spiritual verbiage, folks. You could have all that. You just have to know what you're doing. <laughs> you slice and dice and mix and match, and it doesn't look at all like a religion. Good, probably, <laughs> for the future of humanity moving forward. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so, so thank you for that. And you know what I'm hearing and what you're saying about feedback is I think part of the principle that we're, we're defining here, which is the nervous system is never independent from the world. So just having an experience as transformative as it may be is in and of itself not independent from the nervous system and the world. And so you can't stop being a, a cultural unit uh, unless you go out into Sedona, Arizona, out in the desert and build a shack. I mean, there are people who have done that after spiritual awakening. Uh, but if we want society to keep functioning in the United States and China and everywhere else, uh, we're going to have to follow principles like feedback, very basic principles that you need to be an, a, a nervous system around other nervous systems. And you're going to have to integrate this experience, which in the beginning may feel separate uh, from the body, but ultimately you may have another experience realizing there is no separation between the two. And then being able to bring all of that information back into the nervous system so it can act in the world. Um, because from an evolutionary point of view, that's the function of this system. It's trying to make predictions, learn from the statistical regularities of the environment and decide what to do. It's trying to act. And I think you know very deeply there's a principle there seems to be this sort of one, we, we sort of get lost in the experience and talking about the experience and the spiritual nature of it. And that needs to be put back in the body in a way where it can guide the body in the world. Um, and that's, a, that's, a, that's in the scientific domain, trying to figure out how the body makes predictions, how the brain makes predictions and decides what to do is a very much a scientific question. And we're, we're talking about this dimension where the highest levels of experience have a, tr a fundamental shift or transition that then changes all the way down to the level of the nervous system such that it's starting to decide to do something different uh, fundamentally, like how it interacts with, like how you interact with your spouse, for example. So um, yeah, I'm just trying to put that back into, <laughs> you know, in a realm where science can actually talk about how the experience, which is very hard for us to define, um, can can be something measurable and back in, in, into the body in a way that guides us. And I don't think it's really much different than uh, folks who are, are talking about needing to embed the practice back into the religious you know, or social context. Um, it's, it, it, that's still, the social context is still a definable thing that we can study. Chelsea, what? You probably have lots of thoughts. <laughs> I have so many thoughts. I have so many thoughts and I'm deciding if I say them all at once, is it going to be overwhelming? But I'm going to go for it because, you know, why not? Go for okay. it. Okay. <laughs> First of all, what you say about the body, I think, is a really interesting point because doing my research on the self and what constitutes the self, which I've been obsessing about for about a year now, what I found is that... Uh, there's what, you know, Bessel van der Kolk calls the mohawk of the self, where you get this like midline structures of the brain that are all kind of responsible for the self, like the medial prefrontal cortex, anterior and posterior cingulate, insula, insula thalamus, um, and, and like the parietal lobes in the middle. So you get like this sort of mohawk of self areas, right? And when you look at people on psychedelics, like uh, Millier, a French um, researcher, does an amazing review of various different self-dissolution states, and they come in varieties of flavors. And you see a lot of those areas going offline. 
The interesting thing is those areas also go offline in severe disassociative states, PTSD, trauma reactions, like disorders of consciousness that are really severe and bad. So if you were going to look at someone who had some sort of trauma that's being triggered and that trigger of the trauma is going to be originating in probably like visceral activity, the vagus nerve going up through the amygdala into the thalamus and then into the brain. And then at the same time, the areas responsible for the self are turning off and prefrontal cortex activity is lowering. If you're already in a state of no self, that doesn't actually help you navigate that trauma. In fact, it could reinforce it. And then you could potentially further avoid dealing with the trauma located in the body because the mechanisms of disassociation are similar, both positive and negative. So this brings up when you say integrating the body, like what do we need to do to get um, our self-dissolution to become relational with each other, relational with our body. And when those trauma responses happen, where a lot of parts of the brain go offline, if we're even more used to habituating that through meditation, how do we then kind of habituate ourselves to bring ourselves back into being in touch with the body and our environment and our surroundings, right? So that's like what I think about the body and the brain and meditation. It's a complex dynamic that happens. Um, my second thought was about reward systems and like how reward systems play into this as well. Um, so actually someone emailed Steve and I asking, how do I get to a bliss state in meditation? I've been meditating for eight years of concentration and I've never really gotten a lot of bliss. And then other people and practitioners I know, uh, myself included, I have a very easy time experiencing bliss. And so that was a huge motivator for me in continuing to practice. Like when you get that reward system up and running and it feels really good, you keep going. And then insight develops a sort of a side effect of the reward system of the human brain. So when you look at those like subcortical, uh, you know, mesolimbic dopaminergic pathways is probably actually part of what's responsible, just like every other behavior we do for sort of motivating us towards continuing to do this practice, right? So like, I guess this is sort of two questions wrapped in one is, um, you know, number one, how do we ensure that we involve the body and trauma response in our meditation experience and not use it to just bypass uh, dealing with all of that, which I see all the time. And two, how do we stimulate those reward pathways through either practice or some sort of mechanical uh technology like you guys are doing so that people are motivated to continue so those are the two big questions that are kind of popping up in my mind right now as a result of this dialogue yeah i think these are great questions um i, I was wondering if you could give me a quick definition of no self do you mean the experience of no subject object differentiation or are we talking about something else well there's experiences that people have can I share my screen quickly, Steve? Sure. <laughs> um, you came prepared. Yes, I did. So there's experiences people have, and there's a actually a diagram Miliere made, which is really beautiful, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and it actually encapsulates, so I hope everyone can see this well. Um, so if you look at this, he actually looked at how different kinds of, oh, forgive me, the train is going by, I'm sorry. So there's a narrative self-loss, which is associated with reduction in default mode network activity a lot of times, where the self-referential thinking reduces. 
There's multi-sensory self-loss, which involves loss of a feeling of body ownership, loss of bodily awareness, and loss of self-location. And these things actually tend to relate to a sense of loss of time, which also happens in disassociated PTSD states. It seems that the body as a fixed uh, location within which impermanence revolves is also the fixed place that we feel time. And when all of this goes offline, time goes away as well. And so he actually makes these different maps of modes of self-dissolution. Um, and I think it is a multidimensional construct. This is a really long-winded way of saying I think <laughs> self-dissolution is a multidimensional construct. <laughs> yes, um, and I think there's probably right. Yeah. yeah okay. No, that that's what I was hoping you were going to say, because then that opens up for if if, if the self and self-identification, which is a really, I think, what we're talking about. Is multi-dimensional then some of the dimensions can fundamentally change which gives you these deep experiences of oneness or ecstasy or mystical whatever it is for you whereas the other pieces are still there they're still identifying and they're still attaching to other pieces of itself <laughs> and you've still got this attachment loop going on or in a more neuroscience way you still have processes that are emerging in the system that are referencing themselves there's still mm -hmm. self-reference happening in the brain, even if you're having mm -hmm. a mystical experience. And mm -hmm. I think that's one thing. If neuroscience can give us these multimodal, multidimensional models of the self, which I think is the right way, then we'll start seeing that. You can take ketamine and you can float out of your body, which gives people really deep insight, especially about yeah. their trauma. But you still have a body. You're just looking at it. You still have a sense of self, which can remember this experience, right? There's still self stuff happening even though the self has floated out of the body and so you can have these different ways of altering the sense of self and i think part of what your question is asking then is i may feel like i have awakened or transitioned or reached a level of uh you know buddhist attainment on the paths of the elephant path but I'm not aware because the way that the whole thing works is it hides a lot of stuff from me. <laughs> I'm not aware that there's a piece of the self that's deeply still identifying with a pattern just in the exactly. brain or the body. And then you're bypassing that system because that from an evolutionary perspective, again, that thing is there to help you survive and to help you decide what to do. Uh, and it's a very deep evolutionary process that you're experiencing. And so it's not going to give up easy. <laughs> you can keep doing these practices and taking these psychedelics and uh, having babies and everything else that gives you a transformation. Uh, but there's a piece there that's like, you need me because I'm going to help you figure out what to do when the next pandemic happens or when Trump gets elected again or whatever's going to happen that you need to guide yourself through. And, and so again, <laughs> I think, you know, that's, that's the trick of this system um, is that it, it's designed to hide a lot of information from us. And, and what I mean by that is there's a lot of processing happening in the brain and the body that we don't have conscious access to. Mm -hmm. And one of the big questions in neuroscience is, is a lot of that stuff that we can't get access to leading to the sense of self? Or is the sense of self in this realm that we always have this conscious access? This is a big philosophical debate. That yeah, yeah. and that's really something to talk about. <laughs> sure, we can get into it if I you want. I think this calls for a fine-grained analysis and some very <laughs> <clears throat> severe <laughs> disambiguation page action mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on the way 
people are talking about things. <laughs> but that we don't have time to go into that. Uh, I just want to chime in on trauma. Um, because I think that um, <laughs> it's the same situation here. Uh, I think we need to be very careful about assumptions. So um, there's an enormous fear of re-traumatizing people. Um, but when people come to me with trauma, I have no concern about possibly re-traumatizing them. I know what the concept is. I know you don't do it. But um, uh, you uh, turning towards the mental images, the mental talk, and the bodily emotional sensations that constitute the trauma. Just turning attention towards that in and of itself does not mean you're re-traumatizing them. It does not mean you're causing a problem. So to be afraid to have people experiencing in therapy, you know, practice, whatever, oh, we don't want them to go to that trauma because as soon as they're there, they're hurting themselves again. Um, I think that, that can create um, a less than optimal approach to working with trauma. So I, I do would sort of caution against what might be a notion that they shouldn't be experiencing this stuff or we don't want to bring their attention towards it. Um, having said that, in mindfulness, the basic principle is you can turn towards or you can turn away because it's the equanimity, the allowingness that is the cathartic factor. So having people focus away from the trauma if they have background equanimity when the trauma arises, even though they're not focusing on it or trying to pull away from it, then pulling away from it is not suppression. They're letting it do its thing in the background, but in the foreground, I'm holding this positive thought or relaxation or anchoring in a sight. Okay, fine. Background equanimity is doing its job. Um, if you bring the trauma to the foreground, concentration, clarity, and equanimity, untangle the strands, <laughs> that's clarity. Maybe focus on each one individually with an openness. A person can implement this without re-traumatizing themselves. And even if it gets more and more and more intense, they're still not re-traumatizing themselves. Um, so I think that's one thing to say. The other thing is more speculative. So the issue that you just brought up or that we've been talking about vis-a-vis -vis trauma specifically, I'll tell you when I first learned about trauma, 
um, as a meditation teacher. And it was a long, long, long time ago. I mean, it was back when I essentially didn't have students. Uh, I just was, would give a talk here, give a program there, make some money. I was just a, basically a hippie, you know, making some money by talking about meditation and then meditating a lot. It was good. I didn't think it would get beyond that. So I did a workshop in downtown LA, had to drive downtown. It's awful. But, you know, I did it. There were a few people there. And then uh, I let them have lunch on their own. Uh, I asked them to be mindful, but we'll eat out. We're in downtown. So I ended up in the same restaurant with one of the people in my workshop. And she tells me she's going to leave the workshop. So I asked her why. And I got what for me was a very shocking answer. Um, she said, well, um, the state that I'm going into with this meditation, the way you're guiding me, that's the same state I went into when I had, and then she told me about this horrific thing that happened to me. Um, so then I realized, oh, I didn't know that. What's, what's the, you know, I'd read the Buddhist books about things, but what's this about? Um, so I made a guess that I think was a right guess. I, I made, yeah. Um, now we can't prove it scientifically yet, but it would be a direction to look at, I would think. Um, so what is this it? Here's the guess that I made. My guess was that the natural response to more or less anything that's bad um, would be to go into a state of being so present that you and it are absent. Um, now, if you enter a state like that in a clear way and you understand the steps and you understand the mechanisms, number one, it's going to be an ecstatic liberation whilst this horrible thing is happening to you. And number two, you're going to be able to reproduce it anytime on your own. So every really awful thing that happens to every person, and we care about every person, right? Um, potentially could liberate that person. And I know you're not supposed to say it as a scientist, you're not allowed to project onto nature. But I say even scientists are allowed to have poetry. We just say this is poetry. So here's the poetry. The poetry is I'm reasonably sure that nature, each time it pulls the rug out from under us in situation, in physicality, emotions, 
actually wants us <laughs> to have that experience. So my conjecture was that she went into a pseudo meditative state, which was the beginning of what would have been an actually an empowering experience. But we humans are so complicated that unlike the animals that do go, I watched a cockroach die very carefully this morning, looking for it going into equanimity with the dying process. So it's hard to see in an insect. It's actually rather easy to see in the other thing I see outside my, which is animals eating other animals. You can see a kind of equanimity. So my guess was uh, at, at some point, they try to get away and they fight and whatever, and then they, they become very, very still. And they look right at the animal that's you know, gonna predate. And uh, the mouse with a cat is analogous to human with lion. And we actually have a report from one of the uh, Victorian period African explorers, um, uh, Livingston, as in Dr. Livingston, I presume. Um, he was savaged by a, a lion and carried off, but they scared it away. And he said it was the weirdest thing because he actually had no fear and he had no nothing. He was just very peaceful and he had the irresistible urge to look right into the eyes of the lion continuously. So I'm guessing that nature wants to open up the big picture there and say, okay, yes, it's eating you, but it's, you're all part of the same thing here and we'll show you. And if it's a murine level, that's pretty, that's still complicated relative to a cockroach. But at the human level, we don't get there. We get traumatized. And it, somehow the process goes awry. Um, so the fact that meditative states may remind you of where you started to go when that horrible thing happened, that is inconvenient for teaching people meditation, it's true, but we can work around it. And it may point to something actually really wonderful about what nature always intended for us. Okay, so end of poetry. <laughs> that was the most beautiful commentary <laughs> on something like that that I've ever heard. And I, I have to say, I actually have a friend who went through really severe trauma and she, said that when she was in this extremely traumatized disassociated state she felt completely one with god every single thing that had ever happened to her made complete sense and she was able to see things in this yeah perfect way and yeah, there you go she came back and and everyone told her that nothing about that experience could possibly be positive but she was determined that her mission in life now was to integrate that experience with every other moment of her life, to bring it back in, to take the positive part of that where she went to God and to know that deeply. And it, it is unfortunate that there's not 
as many people acknowledging what you are Shenzhen, which is that there can be this total return to source in those moments. She, um, uh, does she have a practice? A mindfulness she's a student. She's a student of um, one of my my main teacher, Michaela Bohm. Steve knows her too. Um, and Great. she has a practice, and she also identifies a lot with Christian mysticism. And she's very yes. Well, it makes sense devoted. because that is exactly the Christian experience. Exactly, that's Christianity. That is the religion. That form of Christianity, we don't need Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> Can you unpack that uh, a little bit, Shinzen? Uh, no, it's going to take a long time. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I did have a comment. Thank you, Shinzen, for sharing that. That was very beautiful. And, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about how these patterns of trauma are stored and what's the problem with them in the first place. Um, and as you said, you know, even in psychotherapy, they do exposure therapy. So there is a way to bring the trauma up to reprocess in a way that's adaptive for a person. So let's take an example of someone who got traumatized by a rattlesnake. That's something that happens in Arizona quite a bit. Um, you can get to the point, so the brain can store information in a way such that just looking at a picture of a rattlesnake will induce a trauma experience. You're, activating sympathetic nervous system, you sweat, there's cortisol, right? So this can lead to something that is bad and not functional for this person. And what I hear you saying is that there's a way to go to turn so much into the experience that you change the way that your experiential self is relating to the pattern of the trauma. And I think what we've been sort of dancing around is, does that experiential piece change the pattern in the first place like from a neuroscience point of view i'm thinking inputs in the neurons these are just patterns when you look at a picture of a snake it's just a pattern on your retina and somehow that pattern gets interpreted as this threat and then the threat activates all these systems in your brain and what's really interesting is i i think what i hear you saying is that you're not changing the pattern what you're doing is so fundamentally changing your relationship to the pattern that you get some space and then over time, maybe that trauma input pattern gets to change such that finally it's not a problem. And that's really an interesting trick of like the top of the system, the experience, like looking back down to the bottom pieces of the system. And I say that because um, I don't know if you guys know about this concept called pattern completion in neuroscience, but if you're trying to learn something like learning a piece on the piano, um, or even if you just hear music, the first time you hear it, the brain is learning about those patterns. It has to fire in that sequence and then make connections with itself. The next time you hear it, you only need a fraction of the input to get the experience, to remember the rest of the sequence of the melody, for example. The third time you hear it, you need 10% of that. And the next time you need just the little bit of the input and the whole brain can start firing in that melody. So trauma is like that, but on steroids. <laughs> so when you get traumatized, you bypass all the normal learning mechanisms and you go straight through the amygdala, which is the fear part, and you stamp that pattern really quickly. And again, that's helping us to survive. We needed to learn from one experience, from trauma experiences, and that's the function from an evolutionary perspective. Uh, but the problem is they stick. 
So now you've got this pattern completion about some input. And now you're not living on the savanna. You're not being chased by tigers and lions. You don't need to stare into the face of the lion. You're looking at Facebook and you're being traumatized by something on Facebook. It's such a different context. And so what I hear you saying, Shenzhen, is there's something about turning to the experience and fundamentally relating to it differently such that the pattern doesn't complete. The pattern completion is not a problem. I would say the that the pattern, pattern completion, completion is still there. It's not a problem is the best phrase. Mm -hmm. Which doesn't say the pattern completion has gone away. Yeah. It says the pattern completion is not a problem. And where we go from here scientifically, I don't know, but I can tell you what comes to my mind. Um, one change that takes place is that the urge to the pattern completion actually does get less and less because it's less and less relevant to what you're doing in daily life. Other things are just calling you. So that natural evolutionary of forgive because you forgot, <laughs> not forgive and forget, but forget and therefore forgive, that natural so pattern sort of kicks in. And there's less, the pattern that you need to complete comes up less. But then there's other dimensions. The pattern comes up, but the medium is the message. It comes up in a medium that is in a different phase, a fluid phase. So it just dissipates because metaphorically speaking, it's a different, hydrodynamics. Metaphor. I've had this experience. Now, actually, I say metaphorically, but the more I'm getting into thermodynamics, Jay, I swear to God, I swear to God, I never, ever would have said there could be a relationship be between turbulence, Reynolds number, and the stuff we work with in meditation. But I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that be something if we could quantify enlightenment with the Reynolds number, a, par a parameter in a, of a differential equation system that would be understood by every scientist in the world mm -hmm. immediately and therefore trickle down to mm -hmm. everything. But anyway, for one thing, <clears throat> the phase of the medium that's carrying. It's still the medium of the, of the brain and the mind, whatever that is. But if it's in a fluid phase, that's one thing. The other thing though, is about completing the pattern because there's completing that pattern. Like as soon as this goes, <laughs> this other stuff goes. Yep. But as soon as this other stuff goes, where does it go? And where does that go? And where does that go? Well, when you trace down the levels of associational spread, you come to a place where every pattern, no matter what it is, has the same completion. It's the everything, nothing place. 
is the completion. So when <laughs> the trauma arises, it's first of all in a fluid medium. It may be much more poignant, but less problematic. And furthermore, yeah, it completes the pattern. You go to that specific awful thing. And then below that, you go to all your personal hells. And then below that, you go to all the other people's hells. And then you go to all the imagined hells of this universe. And then you go to the hells you can't imagine in every other universe. And then you go to the multiverse. And then you're I'm not signing up, Shinsen. I'm not signing up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can make that journey very, very quickly. Sasaki Roshi used to say, you want to know what a Zen master is? I'll tell you what a Zen master is. A Zen master is a travel agent. We provide people with free reusable tickets to, to travel effortlessly <laughs> back and forth between heaven and hell. Mm. <laughs> That's a direct quote. That's great. <laughs> effortlessly between heaven and hell. Yeah. That's great. You know, I have to ask this question about this heaven and hell situation. And this is a radical, this is a radical question to even ask, I think, but it's something that I actually think about a lot. Why do we actually need to heal? I mean, I know that there's sort of an implicit assumption that we need to heal, but sometimes I really wonder, I mean, Steve has used the metaphor before of, okay, if I go to a meditation teacher or if I go to a neuroscience, uh, a, a neurosurgeon, I have a problem in my brain. I need to go to a neurosurgeon. I just want the best neurosurgeon. I don't necessarily care about anything else except for can they do neurosurgery at the top best level because I'm putting my neurology in their hands. Sometimes to be specific, what I meant, oh. what, I, what I said was, if I want the best neurosurgeon, I don't care why he's the best neurosurgeon. I don't care oh. if it's because he has a deep desire to perform neurosurgery on all sentient beings, or if he's, you know, <laughs> imagines his oppressive father or, you know, something like that every time or the, the date that rejected him in high school. And so he decided, I'm going to show you, I'm going to become the best neurosurgeon. I don't care why they're the best neurosurgeon, just that they're the best. That, that was the context, seeing as you're okay. citing me here, that's what I'm Right, yeah. I'm misquoting Steve right in front of him. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> but okay, so, so now that I've gotten the quote correct, the question is really, if you are enlightened, does it really matter about all the other things? I mean, it's an open question. Do we need to be perfectly healed ever? Do we need to heal at all? Or can we just go straight to being the best neurosurgeon, being the most enlightened, having these states and, and, and why, why must we, do we have to? Yeah. And I, I think what I was dancing around here is that given the complexity of the way the brain identifies with itself and the patterns that it generates, it's quite possible to have a fundamental sense of okayness. You, you feel that you are there, everything is fine, there's no negative emotions, and you're using the language of, of, of any uh, tradition in Buddhism you select, but that the patterns that we're talking about that lead to maladaptive behavior are still in the system. And so it seems like you need to connect that, that level of consciousness expansion, whatever that is, 
back towards itself, back towards the system so that the cleanup can happen or whatever that process is such that it all integrates with itself until every process in the system is integrating with itself instead of rejecting it or resisting it or hiding from itself then I think you will still get, you'll get someone who looks from the outside like they're enlightened and, and they can experience no pain and all these things. They have all these superpowers, but they're, as soon as some, something happens in the world that generates that pattern completion, you get this maladaptive behavior. And now you have a spiritual teacher who is molesting their students or whatever variety of maladaptive behavior that we want to, to, to find. And so it seems like this integration piece, the system turning towards itself, that seems to be the most crucial piece of all of this from the kind of brain point of view, at least. And this is where we have to go to the deepest hells of, of all <laughs> multiverses, Tim Tim. You, you go real fast. Uh. You don't tarry long enough for the flames to have any thermodynamic effects. It's quantum. It's like waving your hand over degree. a candle. You just you just don't. This get is the poetry. <laughs> we have colleagues that claim this for real, but. Uh... <laughs> wow! What an incredible conversation. Thank you so much, Shinzen, Chelsea, and Dr. Sanguinetti for this fabulous uh, episode. And uh, Jay, you really brought the fire here. If I, the fires of hell <laughs> with this great, uh, great uh, framing for this discussion. Thank you so much. And thank you, Shinza and Chelsea for your contributions as well. My instinct is we're not done here, but I say that every time. So uh, in, hope of a, in, in hope of another conversation, Shinza Young, Chelsea Fasano and Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, thank you very much. Thank you, this was fun. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.